0: On the 2nd of May 1973, the Chilean national football team took on Peru in a crucial World Cup qualifier at the Estadio Nacional in Santiago. Victory coupled with success in a subsequent playoff meant that only the Soviet Union stood between Chile and a place at the World Cup finals. That game against the nation Whose government had friendly ties with Chilean President Allende would take place in November at the same venue. But Chileans would come to remember 1973 for more important reasons than football. Powerful figures had been plotting against the democratically elected Allende for two years, both at home and in Washington DC at the White House.
1: I would go to a confrontation with them the quicker the better. We're not going to openly on the to You're kick the, out of Chilean.
0: the Chilean football team did qualify for the World Cup but only because their opponents from the USSR forfeited the match in protest at the CIA backed military coup that saw President Allende killed and thousands imprisoned, tortured or killed in the very stadium that was due to hold the match. In this episode I speak with Professor Kristin Sorensen an expert on global studies, whose specialties include Chile, about the notorious regime of General Augusto Pinochet and the devastating and lasting impact it has had on the lives of ordinary Chileans. At the height of the Cold War, democracies in South and Central America toppled like dominoes as the United States and the Soviet Union used a variety of overt and covert tactics. To ensure friendly governments came to or remained in power. Chile was one of the few nations with a democratically elected government when Salvador Allende formed a coalition government in 1970. But the problems affecting neighboring states were also present in Chile, as Professor Kristen Sorensen explains.
1: Chile has always been a very divided society, it's a very unequal society. Salvador Allende did not just represent the communists and the socialists. There was a coalition of several left-wing parties who all supported him and helped him to become elected. And many, many people in Chile saw their lives improve under his government, under those first three years that he was able to be in power. Uh, Many young people were able to go to the university for the first time. It was affordable for the first time. Many people could count on having the basic food necessities that they needed for their families to have a home that was safe. There were many improvements for some of the most marginalized, but inflation was out of control. The CIA was actively involved in undermining what the Allende government was doing. The CIA was collaborating with right wing group within Chile. One example in particular, was these food distribution centers that were set up by the government to try to provide basic foodstuffs to everybody. A lot of those supplies were getting hoarded, then being sold on the black market, not going to the intended recipients. Plus, the political center in Chile, they have always played a really important role. So when Allende first became president, he had the support of most Christian Democrats. The Christian Democratic Party is a centrist, has historically been a centrist party. But during the years Allende was president, the many Christian Democrats decided they no longer felt comfortable with what was happening. It was too dramatic. They also were vocal, along with the political right, in calling for a change, in calling for Allende to step down there was a congressional election in February 1973. And people who opposed Allende were hoping that more members of Congress would be elected who were on the political right and opposed to Allende. But actually, the opposite happened. Allende gained more seats in Congress in that February congressional election. And so after that, those in the center and the right who opposed Allende started becoming more vocal for a more drastic change to end the Allende government. And they started vocalizing their support for a military coup. And there was an attempted coup on June 29th, 1973, but it was not coordinated. So it was just one faction and it was not successful. But Allende knew, and everybody in the country knew, that there was still this push for something dramatic to happen. By September 11th, 1973, the four commanders of the different branches of the armed forces in Chile were consolidated, and they had the support of the Nixon administration to stage a coup that turned out to be successful. Allende's government ended on September 11th, 1973. With the support of many Chilean people on the political right and in the political center, but many people who had supported the coup thought that it would just be an act that would restore Chile to democracy again soon through new elections, especially the Christian Democrats. They had not anticipated that the military would maintain control of the country for so long. As the years started to pass, many who had initially supported the coup, especially in the political center, especially the Christian Democrats, became more and more vocal and outspoken, calling for a change. And they became targets of the regime, just as initially people on the political left had become targets of the regime. You know, Shea ended up staying in power for 17 years until 1990.
0: The human rights abuses began immediately with the takeover by the military, and those expanded over time. But which people were the initial targets of Pinochet's regime?
1: Original targets included members of the Allende government, people who were affiliated with the Socialist Party, the Communist Party, there was another leftist group called the Revolutionary Leftist Movement. That's how we would say it in English. And people who have, were affiliated with that group were also targeted. The vast majority of people who were targeted were young adult, lots of university students, college students, high school students, primarily male, but also many female prisoners and anyone who was perceived as a threat. So... It was not just if you were affiliated with a leftist political party, it was if you challenged those in power for any reason. And members of the clergy became targets, university professors, artists, anyone who tried to speak out. They were able to take control of the country very quickly. This was very well coordinated from north to south of the country within 72 hours The entire country was under the control of the military regime, mostly within the first 24 hours.
0: When the coup occurred, were the liberal or anti-Pinochet, anti-military press able to alert the public to the atrocities going on? Or did the new regime quickly stifle any kind of communication of dissent or varying perspectives?
1: Media was taken over by the military if it wasn't shut down, different media outlets. And this was very public what was happening. It started very dramatically with the Chilean Air Force bombing the presidential palace, the equivalent of the United States Air Force bombing the White House that happened on September 11th, 1973. So everybody knew exactly what was happening. That was televised. There were outlets who opposed Pinochet, who continued to circulate communication, but it was all underground and it was very dangerous to do so. As many Chileans fled, as as the exile community outside of Chile grew, there was more and more that was circulating externally, internationally as well.
0: What tactics did Pinochet employ to eliminate the opposition? Was it like in communist Romania, for example, where the government created this sense that every third person was a spy, so people ended up reporting their neighbours for trivial things because they feared they'd be reported for something themselves? Or was it more surreptitious, with spies and police looking for any kind of sign of dissent and then whisking people away in the middle of the night?
1: was both. So especially in those early months of the regime, a lot of it was very direct and you would see people detained in public places. On the day of the coup, students in their universities were held under arrest on their college campuses. Your workplace could be taken over. But also within that first year of the military government, the secret police were established. So first it was called the DINA. That's an acronym, D-I-N-A. And then in the later 1970s, the DINA was replaced with another acronym, the C-N-I, but they essentially did the same type of work. And they usually, under the cover of darkness, detained people, not acknowledge that they had detained them, torture them, and often forced them to disappear.
0: If your loved one was one of the so-called disappeared. Was there any mechanism by which these people could seek out information on the whereabouts of friends and family who had presumably been arrested?
1: The relatives of people who disappeared, they tried to do what they could. They took action. They demanded answers from police headquarters, from military barracks, from other government headquarters. They went to the courts but they would never be supported. And they were often lied to, or stories would be fabricated about what had happened to their loved ones. Oftentimes the officials would say, we have no record of this person. We did not detain them. Other times they would make up a story and say, oh, that person was in a relationship, a secret relationship with someone else, and they ran off and they're in a different country now. But there were groups who were trying to support the relatives. And so initially after the military coup, there was a coalition of leaders from different organized religions who came together. They were called the Committee for Peace, Comité Pro Paz. And they were trying to offer support to the family members of the disappeared, helping them to get answers. But it became too dangerous for them. And so eventually, this organization was primarily only housed within the institution of the Catholic Church. And then it became called the Vicariate of Solidarity. And the Catholic Church was able to protect these families and protect themselves a little bit more because historically the Catholic Church has been such a powerful institution in Chile. That was the one place where you could get a little bit of protection. For many years, their headquarters were right on the central plaza in downtown Santiago, but many churches would offer refuge to relatives of the disappeared. Oftentimes in their basements, they would set up rooms and areas where these people could come and gather and share information and offer one another support. And something concrete that they did that they provided resources so that the relatives, who were primarily women, it was the women who were left behind in most of these cases, they offered them materials and resources so that the women could use their craft skills to tell stories about what had happened to their families. And then the church would take these craft pieces, they're called arpieras, and they would smuggle them out of the country. So they would secretly smuggle them out of Chile, and then they would start to circulate abroad. And this was a way to help to educate the rest of the world about what was happening in Chile. So an arpillera is usually about the size of a placemat, and the back of it is a thick material, burlap usually. And then on the front, the women would stitch pictures using different scraps of cloth to try to illustrate what had happened to them and to their families. So in this particular one, it's taking place in some sort of public place, like a park. And in the center of the picture, there's two women and they're exchanging a parcel with one another. And in the foreground, you see this one figure all in black. And this person, this is supposed to represent um, the repressive forces, the police or the military. And you see there's other women sitting on these benches with colorful hair and colorful outfits. And this is actually illustrating a secret way that members of this organization of relatives of the disappeared would exchange information. So the woman who created this, Arpheera, explained to me that the package was a loaf of bread. And inside the loaf of bread, the women would place messages. And that was a secret way that they could share information in public in a way that looked harmless to the people in power, the authorities who were monitoring them and watching them. So
0: did they use these pictures because it was safer than making a written statement explaining what precisely had happened to their husbands or to their family member?
1: Well, they did that too. So they, there were lawyers who were work, working with them within the church who would help them to give their testimony The lawyers kept a record of all of these materials, and they knew that there was only so much that they could do during the dictatorship because the courts were compromised, but they kept very careful records of every single one of these cases. If someone came forward to give their testimony of what had happened to their family and to their loved ones, those records were kept, and they've been really useful since the return to democracy. In pursuing investigations and trying to bring the perpetrators to justice. Also, often it was the breadwinners in these families who disappeared. They were the income earners. And so the church would pay the women who were creating these Arpieras money in exchange for their arpieras to help to give them a little bit of income to provide for their families too.
0: I know there were like, Catholic priests who were actually killed by the Pinochet regime. so. Did a fear of further reprisals against the church cause it to offer general support for victims rather than directly confronting the regime?
1: I think at times church leaders did try to take him on pretty directly. This was the only institution that had the power to do so in Chile. Pinochet identified as a Catholic himself but the leaders of the Catholic Church within Chile they were not, all unified. There were many who supported Pinochet and supported the military government, and there were many others who did not. But the church did, especially as the dictatorship wore on and on, and as it became more and more apparent how many human rights violations had taken place and how many people were affected by that, the leaders did become more outspoken.
0: This coup obviously played out against the backdrop of the Cold War. Did the regime, though, differentiate between their different kinds of opponents? Or did they try to characterize any critic as some kind of revolutionary Bolshevik or Marxist extremist?
1: There wasn't a lot of nuance in their characterization of people whom they considered to be threats. The military leaders did a really good job of dehumanizing people who were their targets. And I think this was uh, a method that was used especially for the lower ranking military members who had to actually often be on the ground committing the violence. This was a way for them to rationalize what they were doing if they could be told that the people they were harming were not even Chilean. Oftentimes the rhetoric was that these were external Enemies of the state, even if they were Chilean citizens, they were not considered real Chileans. Some former Nazi Germans who settled in Chile after the Holocaust even cooperated with the Chilean military during the time of the dictatorship.
0: How would you characterize the role that the international community and foreign media played in addressing and accurately representing the events that were unfolding in Chile?
1: Yeah, there was a lot of variation over time. So first, this actually begins in the 1960s, before Allende becomes president, when in Chile, Eduardo Frei Montalva, a Christian Democrat from the centrist party, was president. He had a very positive relationship with U.S. diplomats. This was overt cooperation with members of the U.S. embassy in Chile, And the Johnson administration in particular wanted to have a very positive, friendly relationship with President Frey because, first of all, their ideologies were somewhat aligned in terms of their beliefs regarding modernization in Latin America and also trying to help people who were more vulnerable in this unequal society, but in a way that wasn't a threat to the status quo. So if they could try to work within the system that was already in place, they thought that could be helpful and steer people away from supporting the more leftist, more extremist political parties and ideas. There was a lot of consultation, especially between President Frey and the U.S. government while he was in power in the 1960s. But at the same time, the CIA was also doing things within Chile covertly, and there was oftentimes not a lot of coordination between what the CIA was doing and what the U.S. diplomats were doing. The United States didn't want Allende to become president. They did not want him elected, and they tried to influence what was happening in Chile so that Allende could not become president. After Allende was elected by popular vote in 1970, Chile had a multi-party electoral system, and so Allende did only receive 36% of the popular vote, but it was the largest percentage of any of the candidates. And at that time in Chile, they did not have runoff elections like they do now. So he had already been elected by popular vote, and the U.S. did not want the Congress in Chile to ratify that vote. So they tried to intervene before that vote was about to take place in Congress. And so the CIA was involved in a botched attempt to kidnap General Rene Schneider. And this took place on October 23rd, 1970. During the attempted kidnapping, he ended up getting killed. So, the ratification was to take place on October 24th. The CIA and Chilean sympathizers had hoped that this attempt to undermine the process would prevent Congress from supporting Allende. And the CIA's plan was to blame other Chilean leftists on the kidnapping of General Schneider. The Chilean public was so. Disturbed and disgusted by what happened that it only served to create more support for the ratification of President Allende on October 24th with the support of the Christian Democrats in Congress. The results were ratified. He was inaugurated on November 3rd of 1970. So Allende was trying to work within the Chilean constitution. He was trying to accomplish everything through democratic processes his slogan was revolution through empanadas and red wine, two staples in the Chilean diet. He just could not get a break from the intervention that was taking place from these outside powers, especially the United States and the segments of the population within Chile who were also trying to undermine his government. The coup took place during the Nixon administration In the early years of the dictatorship, the CIA was very involved in helping to coordinate communication among the different military leaders of several different military governments in the southern cone of Chile. So with support from the CIA, the Chilean, Argentinian, Bolivian, Paraguayan, Uruguayan, and Brazilian governments were sharing information with one another about people they considered threats to their governments who could also be considered threats in these other countries because of shared ideologies and political beliefs among the military leaders. And so they would coordinate intelligence and help to ensure that none of these countries were safe for people they targeted. And not only were these countries not safe in the Southern Cone, the CIA and Operation Condor ensured that no place on the planet was safe for some of these dissidents, including in Washington, D.C., a former diplomat of the Allende government, Orlando Letelier, was assassinated along with an American colleague in 1976. It was especially after that when Americans started to pay attention. And at the same time in the mid to late 1970s, the U.S. Congress was starting to pay more attention to CIA operations across the globe, especially in Latin America, and they were starting to demand more information. There were committees that were formed in Senate and in the House of Representatives to investigate what the CIA was doing, and the CIA was forced at this point to be, start to become more transparent, and as more oversight was implemented, this also happened to coordinate with the time that Jimmy Carter was elected president. He took a step back from supporting the Pinochet regime. It also allowed for a bit more of a loosening in Chile regarding media outlets, some media outlets in Chile, some especially magazines that had historically been affiliated with the Christian Democrats started to challenge the regime a little bit more. Also within Chile in 1978, an abandoned lime mine in a location called Lomken in the Santiago area was discovered to have human remains. And this was the first event in Chile that was covered by the press in Chile to really bring to light the degree of human rights violations taking place during the military government. And so as the Chilean public, especially those who may not have initially been the primary targets of the regime, started to learn more about what had happened under the military rulers and under General Pinochet, they started to challenge their own government more. Restrictions got tighter again in the early 1980s. When Reagan became president in the United States, he was not as critical of what was happening In Chile, he was more supportive. In the 1980s, a larger amount of Chilean people started to feel emboldened and start to take to the streets, especially on the 10-year anniversary of the military coup in 1983. Uh, Labor unions started to promote demonstrations, and every month there would be a demonstration opposing Pinochet, and that started to gain in strength. But also in 1980, Pinochet had implemented a new constitution for the country of Chile. And within the constitution, he had said that there would be a referendum in 1988 in which the Chilean public would have the choice to vote for the military government to remain in power or for there to be a transition to democracy. That led to the plebiscite happening in 1988 with support of the United States and other international observers who were ensuring that it was not going to be a compromised vote. And in fact, this is what represented well in the film that came out in 2012. The film is called No, And the director's name is Pablo Larraín. He actually grew up during the dictatorship in Chile, and his father is affiliated with the ultra-extreme political right in Chile. But the director has a very different political perspective. And this film called No is portraying the moment when the plebiscite takes place in 1988 and the months leading up to that with the different political campaigns that were advertised on TV. The vote for the no, which was no was no, we don't want the military government to continue. The yes vote was yes for the military government to stay in power. The no campaign was supported by the United States at this point and other international actors. The movie depicts the advertising campaigns that got 15 minutes each per night to represent why the government, the military government should stay in power and why it's healthiest for Chile for it to have a chance to return to democracy. It was done legitimately, but Pinochet was expecting to be protected. This was well represented in the film. The results are coming in on TV in Chile. It looks like the no vote is winning. And then one of the headquarters for the no campaign, the power goes out. And this is an indication to the people. Oh, no, you know, the military is trying to do something. They're trying to mess this up. And then the power comes back. They're watching television. One of the generals of the Chilean military speaks and says, in fact, it was General Mate and says, well, it looks like the the no vote has won. And by the general saying this, he was saying, we are not going to support Pinochet if he tries to claim that he's won here. But it was not until the commander in chief of the Air Force made that statement that the Chilean people felt assured that the results of the election were going to respected. Pinochet was expecting his leaders to support him to just proclaim that he had won, but they did not do that.
0: Around the same time that Pinochet lost power, apartheid in South Africa was ended by a popular vote, after which the government there set up a truth and reconciliation committee to investigate the horrors of the past. It doesn't seem as if there was a Meaningful, similar kind of process that occurred in Chile. Why was that?
1: General Pinochet remained the commander in chief of the army until 1998. So democracy was officially restored in Chile in 1990. So the plebiscite took place in 1988. There was an election process. And the first president after the end of the regime was Patricio Aylwin. He was inaugurated in 1990. After he became president, he did create a Truth and Reconciliation Committee. It was called the Rettig Report, Informe Rettig. And they did investigate some human rights violations, but they only focused on human rights violations that resulted in disappearance or death. And they did not Focus on the much larger number of people who were imprisoned and tortured and survived. And there were many reasons for this. One is that the Chilean military continued to very explicitly threaten the democratic government. But in addition, I think so many people were traumatized by what had happened during the regime that there was so much fear. And the fear was really holding people back from being more direct and confrontational regarding finding truth and justice for what had happened during the regime. The people who were most directly affected by the violence, especially the relatives of the disappeared, relatives of the executed, they have never been silent, and they were the loudest voices during that transitional period in demanding that their government take more action to get to truth and get to justice for what had happened to their loved ones. But they were often marginalized. They were not given much attention in the press. Things did start to change in 1998. So in 1998, Pinochet was in the UK. He was on vacation. He went there every year with his wife for a vacation. And while he was in the UK, He was having some back problems and consulted with a doctor and the doctor recommended surgery. He checked into a hospital to have this minor back surgery. And when this information started to spread that General Pinochet was in a hospital recovering from surgery, Judge Baltasar Garcon in Spain Decided to start proceedings to try to have him extradited to Spain to stand trial there for human rights violations. And Pinochet was arrested. He was placed under arrest while he was recovering from surgery and he ended up having to stay under house arrest in the UK until 2000 as the courts argued about whether the UK Should extradite him to Spain or not. Ultimately, he was returned to Chile. He was not sent to Spain. And the argument was that he could not go to Spain to stand trial for health reasons. And there is a very famous image of him landing at a military airport in Santiago and he's getting wheeled out of the plane with his wheelchair. And he's surrounded by his Chilean supporters who are cheering him on. This is a victory that he's been returned to their country. And he stands up and pushes the wheelchair away, which suggests to those people who wanted to see him brought to justice that this was all a charade, that he was able to game the system. And now he's back and safe in Chile. But he wasn't that safe in Chile. This was a turning point. A special judge was appointed, Juan Guzman in Chile who did start to investigate crimes affiliated with the Pinochet regime. And at different points between 2000 and 2006 when he ultimately died, he was placed under house arrest, but he was never really brought to justice. There were different battles in the court system in Chile about whether he should stand trial or not. At one point, the Supreme Court of Chile deemed him unfit to stand trial But then Pinochet agreed to a television interview with a Miami TV station, and they were asking him questions about his role during the military government. And it became clear when you watched the interview and you listened to his responses that he was very mentally sound. And that actually ended up to be an important piece of evidence to help the process start again for him in Chile. But never was he fully brought to justice for his crimes.
0: It's now 50 years since the coup that brought Pinochet to power, and 30 years since he left office. Has the country now come to terms with the events and tragedies? Or is this something that people still struggle to discuss and to come to grips with on a societal level?
1: Chile has gone through tremendous changes since then. It's a much more democratic society today than it was 10 20 30 years ago and there's a new generation that's in charge Chile currently has one of the youngest presidents in the world but just in the last week or so I've been paying attention to the news in Chile and after what just happened in Brazil with the supporters of Bolsonaro taking over government buildings in the capital of Brazil and claiming that Lula was not elected fairly, that something went wrong during that election, that he was not the legitimate elected leader. That seems to have emboldened some extremist people on the political right in Chile. Within the last couple of weeks, a few different things have happened. In Santiago, these banners have appeared in different neighborhoods and the banners say, armed forces save our country, asking for another military intervention in the current government. And also the headquarters of the members of the Association of Relatives and the Disappeared in Santiago, they were blasted with flyers that were left outside of their building. And the flyers have an image of a body being dropped from a helicopter which is associated with one of the methods that the chilean military government used to eliminate the victims of the regime they were dropped into the pacific ocean and along with the image there were words and the words are something along the lines of communist blank your relatives were killed for being blank and this just happened in the last week or two in chile and I think there's a consciousness that this is the 50-year anniversary coming up of the military coup. The memories are still there, that historical memory is still there, and has not fully been processed and addressed, and it keeps bubbling up. And there's still so much fear that is instilled just by triggering these memories, too.
0: Well, Pinochet supporters then and now often try to characterize the disappeared as Marxist extremists. It's worth pointing out that among the many moderate individuals who died during the Pinochet regime was President Eduardo Frei Montalva. He'd had positive relations with the West and served as president before Allende up until 1970. He became an outspoken critic of Pinochet and then in 1982, he suddenly died in mysterious circumstances. Years later, his body was exhumed An autopsy showed that he had been poisoned, perhaps another victim of the Pinochet regime. As far as the United States involvement goes, there's never been an official apology to Chile as with most other countries where the CIA and other US government operatives became involved in overthrowing democratically elected regimes. However, in 2003, while Secretary of State, Colin Powell was asked about the Chile coup. His response was, it's not a part of American history that we're proud of. And in 2022, current president of Chile, Gabriel Boric was asked by CNN interviewer, Christiane Amanpour about the possibility of an apology from the United States. But he evaded the question, simply saying, it's in Chile's best interest to maintain a positive relationship with the united states i think unless we become too
1: dangerous to tackle there's going to be a constant erosion of our international position we can say what we want about dollars but in his period people were just too afraid to tackle us It did money around the united states